You're listening to Early Doors Football Podcast with host Mark Roach and co-host Dylan Kerr, Tom Watt and Sherelle Casal, a For The Now media production. Welcome to episode 24 of the Early Doors Football Podcast and we're very excited because we'll have a new look to the show from next week. But what have we got for you this week? Well, we're starting with Steve Guppy, the former Wickham and Leicester winger, followed by a chat with Adam Miles from Refugee Soccer and a returning guest, experienced coach and former player, Nicola Waxler, who has some exciting news to share with us, haven't you, Nicola? I do indeed, Mark. Uh, And in the last, in the current series of football fans from around the world, I speak to a Crystal Palace fan in Norway and a Manchester United fan in Nigeria. And from next week, we start a new series of fan fixtures where fans of different clubs will go head-to-head against each other. But before we talk to our first guest, it's time for our first featured club of 2022. And our focus this week is on Queensborough FC in the USA. And we've already had Queensborough's Adam Benke, the club's chief business officer, on as a guest. So Queensborough FC is the newest professional men's soccer team, soccer as they call it in America, as you know, in Queens in New York. And they're part owned by Spanish football legend David Villa. And they'll start playing competitively in the 2023 season of the USL Championship, which is the top tier of the United Soccer League or USL for short. Queens is one of the most diverse communities for football in the world, with more than 2 million residents, 150 nationalities and 130 languages spoken across more than 90 distinct neighbourhoods and 100 square miles. And Queensborough FC is a club built with, by and for the community in Queens, with a commitment to diversity, equality and inclusion, as well as strong community engagement while ensuring a safe, respectful, supportive and productive environment. So football, or soccer as it's known in the US, is the most popular sport in Queens, and Queensborough FC are aiming to embrace and unite its diverse community in its own purpose-built soccer stadium. And if you want to follow the club's progress, you can do so via their website, queensboroughfc.com. That's queensboroughfc.com. And now it's time to welcome Steve Guppy. Steve, welcome to the show. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, you're very welcome. And it, it's great to see you. And obviously, you, you've had a fantastic career. I'm just looking down the list now again to remind myself. Wickham, Leicester, Celtic, Leeds. So you've got something in common with Dylan, Stoke City, uh, back to Wickham, DC United out in America, and of course, England. Uh, and you're, you're back out in, in America and We've had a few wingers on um, previously and we were talking about it before the, the start of the call. And I know, you know, you're a coach now in, in Tennessee and you're very passionate and, and focused on uh, one-to-one coaching. And I don't mean, you know, like just you and one other person. I mean, taking players on. So um, so to, to sort of bring us right up to speed, we will talk a bit about your career, but what is it that you're doing now and, you know, which, which club are you working with and, and what specifically are you doing with them? No, um, at the moment, I'm at um, a Nashville Soccer Club. We're, it's the second year we've been there. We're like a, a relatively new franchise in the, in the MLS. So um, it's been great up till now. But 
two seasons. We've managed to make the playoffs both times. Uh, listen, it's been great. It's been really enjoyable. Um, but you're, you're quite right, really, you know, as a, as a coach, and, and Dylan will probably say the same, is that, you know, you try and work out where your passions lie. You know, what, what is it you, what you really, uh, really want to do? And for me, it was always, um, you know, working on the art of 1v1s, taking players on. Um, ever since I was a young lad, and I could go, this could be a long story, but I'll try and make it brief. You know, when I was, you know, just starting out, like every kid, I was in the back garden playing, you know, football with my dad. And my dad was a goalkeeper, he used to play for West Brom. Um, and he, he used to play in his younger years with national services like the greats, like Ronnie Clayton, who was at Blackburn, um, and a guy called Terry Payne who uh, was a Southampton legend, 1966 World Cup squad. Now, Terry um, had an impact on my dad because he used to love watching him drop his shoulder, you know, playing together, drop his shoulder and go past defenders. He used to marvel at it. So he wanted that for me. So, and that was when it was the real change, the difference really, where most kids were in the back garden shooting against their parents. So, you know, my dad had me in the back garden, just run up to him, drop my shoulder and go past him. And we used to do it hour on hour, um, and that really, you know, looking back now was probably, I managed to make a career out of doing that, you know, so my dad all them years ago had a massive influence on my whole career, but right from them early days, he really, um, it was kind of position specific coaching without realizing it. Um, so I've kind of sort of been brought up on that. And that's something that I, I try to bring, um, to every, every club, um, I, I, I go to really. Yeah, we, we've had, um, you know, wingers. We've had defenders, strikers, and 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 Dylan could could do with someone out uh, like you out in South Africa at the moment because I know you've got a bit of a challenge out there, Dylan, scoring goals, haven't you? But but Steve, just just looking back at you've had some fantastic highlights, and and you know I I didn't realise this, but you actually were at Newcastle United for a while as as well, weren't you? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I look it's such a long time ago now, to be honest, um, you know, talking about my own career, I very rarely get do it, to be honest, because um, it's all about coaching and, and you're always you're trying to get the best out of the players you're working with. But yeah, you twist me arm. We can talk about it. Um, yeah, it was it, it was my my and I really think this is worthwhile talking about because I know you've had a lot of, you know, very famous players on who have had fantastic careers. My career pathway into the game was very different. And I'd like to try and, you know, throw it out there because you never know who's, who's listening. Um, it might help people in, in similar positions where, you know, I, going back to, you know, you know, as a young lad, I was, I was doing pretty well, 11, 12. I think everyone's good at that age, aren't they? Um, but the problem started for me, 13, 14, 15, everyone shot up in size and I didn't have my growth spurt. I, I was I was I range small, and now all of a sudden, players I used to be able to go round, I could no longer do it, and they just get tied to me and out muscle, and it, and it affected my my confidence, um, bloody bloody blind. And I'm quite sure a lot of people listen to this and will will you know could could actually go, yeah, I know I know how that feels. I see it a lot. In um, so I actually, it all came to a head for me um, when I left school. I didn't get offered an apprenticeship at any football team. So uh, I retired, <laughs> I retired <laughs> at the age of 16. Um, and I swear to you now, I didn't kick a ball for two years. From 16 to 18, I did not kick a ball. Um, just really, you know, I, not only did I not grow, I was very immature as well, mentally. So I, I, 
you know, so in that two years, I was on a, working on a building site, um, a trainee electrician, and I moved on to be um, a qualified bricklayer. Um, so I was doing my apprenticeship away from the game. And the, and the turning point for me was that my, um, a lot of my schoolmates, when I was 18, decided to start up a Sunday afternoon team down in Southampton. So, you know, this kind of sums up how my career went, really, is that I was playing down at a place called Fleming Park, which was one of those scenarios where you got about 10 pitches, you know, and you're, you're there Sunday afternoon, Division 6, you can't get any lower. Um, but I started playing, started to enjoy it. Um, but of course, I'd had my growth spurt in that period on the building site um, and, uh, and all the pace and, and all that that I used to have sort of came back. So um, it all happened pretty quickly in a, in a number of years. You know, to, to kind of best sum it up, I guess, I worked out that when I was in Fleming Park playing Division Six football, in Spain, a player called Ferrer was making his debut for Barcelona. And in seven years from that day in Fleming Park, seven, eight years time, I'd be running out on a pitch playing against him for Leicester against Chelsea. Um, and so, you know, the, my, my pathway really from, from park football to then non-league into Wickham Wanderers, was, that was quite a jump. You know, I was, I was at Wickham for four or five years, fantastic experiences, you know, as learning from, you know, Martin O'Neill coming in and, what you know, everyone needs that bit of luck, but a manager who's going places, who's so talented and to, you know, in, in install the belief in you. We went, won, won the league, Vauxhall Conference, and then I was a professional for one year. Um, and then we won, uh, went up through the playoffs against Preston into League One. But I, I then at the end of that season got a move to Newcastle. So, you know, all happened really quickly. And Newcastle were top of the premiership at that time. And it was probably a jump too soon for me, in all honesty. Um, I was there for like six months and then uh, moved on to Port Vale. But, you know, but I played one game for Newcastle. And um, I think the funny thing was I was Kevin Keegan, who was the manager of Newcastle, Andy Cole, Peter Beardsley up front, you know, amazing, amazing team. Um, and he, uh, in no uncertain terms, recommended that I sign for Port Vale, who, um, one, I didn't know where they were or what league they were in, to be honest, um, coming from Southampton. But bottom, fourth bottom in the championship, so I was going down to sign for them. And uh, as I was driving down to the Potteries, there's a big billboard outside a news agent saying Premiership Star signs for Vale. And I was thinking, great, you know, that's good news because we're fourth bottom. We need all the help we can get. So um, I was desperately disappointed when I found out they were talking about me because uh, I was anything but a Premiership Star, you know. So, um, yes, that was a, a long-winded story. But I, wanted, I think it's worthwhile pointing out, you know, the route through yeah. them. How a lot of a lot of you know uh, a lot of kids would would have experienced the yeah. same thing. Yeah, Steve. Honestly, I think you know from from my my perspective, you know, me and Mark Mark always says to me about questions and anything, but and I always jump on um, what 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 we we talk about, what you talk about, and I think kids now, you know, that that, that everything's that we've got academies, we've got um, non-league academies, we've got people setting up academies. Um, not just in England, but in, in Europe and, and especially in Africa. Um, and I think that story of what you said of, you know, from, you know, you, you, you're playing well, then you, 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 your dad brought you up to, a, to do a certain way of playing. You, you, your growth spurt didn't happen. So you kind of went out the game, you went into building, 
you got a, you, 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 your apprenticeship doing whatever you were doing as a young kid. Then you found out that this uh, um, football was happening on a Sunday. You went and played it. I think now kids don't get that opportunity now because there's so many options and so many opportunities. Not real in, in the way that we did it back in the day. And I think it's important with what you said. And I think it's important to the, to the young listeners and even the, the, the old people that, or the older generation that, that understand that way that we were brought up as footballers. We weren't given the opportunity of how young players are, are told and, and taught these days. We did it in the back garden. We did it with his dads. We did it on a Sunday in, in, in a field that you wouldn't walk your dog on compared to the, the way that AstroTurf is coming to football now and 3G, 4G, 5G will probably turn up one day. And, and I think it's a very, very good insight of you growing up and, and, and becoming who you became because of that uh, way of, 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 of dealing with rejection, keeping going, finding these players that are 18 years old could go and do that. So I think it's fantastic, Steve, what, what, with, with what you just said. Well, well I hope in just, you know, in, in coming about these old stories, it, it gives someone a little bit of hope out there. I mean, um, you know, the, the honest truth is, is that looking back now, I was obviously devastated not to be given an apprenticeship with a, with a football team, but it might have worked in my favour. So I remember talking to Matt Letizia about this because he, he, although he did go into Southampton's Academy, he had a long period of time before he joined them. So he really coached himself, very similar to myself. I had my dad, he might have had his, I don't know. But if you look at Matt, very unique style, whereas academies, they're almost like churning out or trying to churn out clones. You know, I, I, I in my, 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 um, soccer career, football career, you know, there's a lot of two-touch, a lot of two-touch, because I understand why, because um, it offers structure to the team, to the shape, you know, you're looking at, as a coach, looking at all sorts of things. So I'd have a whole week at two-touch, and then come the weekend, they'd go, hey, get at your fullback. And I'm like, well, that's yeah. all good. I haven't been working on it all week, you know, and, and so that's why I think when you look at the English game, over the last 20 years, we've created a number of give-and-go merchants, you know, wingers who are more give-and-goes rather than, you know, someone who, who's actually comfortable and capable of taking players on. And you, and you go back another layer, even in the academies, where it's, it's almost like they have a certain set of, of idea of, of coaching players. But when they get to that 14, 15, 16, it all does become about shape, you know, your, your job within a team. But the problem with that, I mean, of course you understand, you need to learn the game and all that, but a lot of these kids are going through their growth spurts at different times. So if you're all of a sudden working on shape all the time, then actually those kids have just had a growth spurt. They're now six, seven inches, whatever, taller than they were. Their feet don't feel like their own feet anymore. So they now really, they need to go back and do 1v1 training, you know, individual work. But of course, you know, the, the syllabus has kind of moved on now. Um, you know, and, and so, you know, a lot of these kids get fall through the floorboards, really, because, you know, they need they need their extra work. But, you're, you're, you know, you're right in what you say, Dylan, is that, you know, there's bits in my story that I missed out. And really, that is finishing work at a building site and going down the park on my own for two hours practicing, um, you know, in the winter, going behind AstroTurfs because I couldn't go on there behind and just having a little bit of floodlight that I could go and work on my own. And, and it became, 
Now, the reasons I did it, I guess, was more fear than anything, because I hated working on a building site. And the fear was I'd have to spend my whole life on it unless I managed to get this whole football thing right. So the obsession of practice and all the rest of it, you know, really was, it was almost like, well, if I don't become a footballer, look what I'm going to be having to do all my life. Um, mm. So there's, and maybe that there again, you know, kids today, maybe they have it a little bit too comfortable. Academies, if they're in there, fabulous facilities now, you know, do they lose their uh, a little bit of hunger? Maybe that's for another day. And, and well, you, like, uh, Steve, you, you um, obviously went on to play for England and uh, you played at um, both the old Wembley and the new Wembley. I think you were one of the first two to play at both, weren't you? Was it Jeff Kenner was the other one? Yeah, uh, Jeff Jeff played in the same game as me. Yeah. I've talked about it the other day, actually. Um, I, w- I was the first person to win at both. That, that's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry, Jeff. Sorry. You're, you were the first player and... Correct me if I'm wrong, but possibly still the only player who's played for England at every level, including semi-pro. Is that right? Potentially, uh, I th- I might, it might be. You might be. I have heard people say that. I haven't personally checked it. Okay. That that that. I yeah. It was a long, long way, long way round to round the houses to get to that England call up for sure. Yeah. So, go on, Dylan. Go on. Oh, I'm just, you know, you just reminded me, uh, uh, I was at Burton Albion Academy with with Mickey Whitlow when he was academy manager. Then I went to Chesterfield three years later. And you're talking about you used to go from the building site straight into, you know, to the back of a park to get the the, the glare off a bulb on on the field to do what you had to do. And I remember with the EPPP and it, it, everything was like set and you had to do certain things with young players. And I'm talking 15, 16, uh, 17 year old apprentices, but then you were given 25, 30 minutes to let them do their own thing. And these players just didn't seem interested. They didn't want to work on, if he's a fullback, he didn't want to work on his delivery down the line. He didn't want to work on his crossing. If he was a winger, he didn't want to work on that one V one scenario. If it was a striker, he didn't want to work on that uh, finishing aspect. They just, you know, they, they just wanted to go in the dressing room and 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 basically do nothing. I mean, that 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 that's different uh, from an academy level that I was with at Burton and and, and at Chesterfield. And it's a shame that that, that that these kids don't understand the what you had to go through, what I had to go through as as a youngster. Um, to, to actually become better and to actually become a better player. Well, I, I think that's you're quite right. You know, I've, I've experienced those things as well. I've seen that in academies where it's almost become a bit of a punishment to do extra. Um, and, you know, and that's really one of the things um, now I'm, I'm obviously a coach, um, assistant coach here at Nashville. With any young players we have, they are all given an individual programme and, 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 you know, one thing I did when I, when I retired, really, I, I sat down and trying to work out what I wanted to be. And it was like position-specific coach, try and, you know, carry on the work that my dad did, I guess, is 1v1. So I started to watch video footage of myself as a player because there were days when I'd take a fullback on and it felt great. Um, you know, twist Mickey up, Mickey Whitlow up or whatever. But there were other days, same player, and it'd be like pulling teeth, you know, and it'd be difficult. Um, so then I started to look at videos and starting to work out what I was doing different. And over the course of too many years, I've, you know, I've been working on this like 1v1 formula that um, I try and teach the players. 
Um, so, you know, here at Nashville, for argument's sake, you know, we players are given, you know, a set routine they need to go through in the morning before training, just get out, do extra, get out and show that hunger, you know, and not all have that hunger. And the ones who don't, you know, they don't tend to stay around too long. But the ones who have that hunger, do the extra work, do the warm up, and then we go and do position specific work. And, you know, we're working on, as a rule, before training, unopposed, and then during training, after training, opposed 1v1s. And I try and break down this formula. But, but you're right, you know, when you're offering um, academy kids 30, 20, 30 minutes to do their own thing, and I've seen it, people put music on and go and do your own thing, they're kind of lost of, of what to do. Um, so we try and fill in the gaps, and I'm sure everyone was the same, but you do need that passion and that hunger to succeed um, and, and, you know, and, and, and one difference, I guess, in America here is that if you don't do well or you, you know, it doesn't work out, you can get traded and you, you don't actually, the player doesn't have a say in it. You know, it, it, it's so, and, and maybe they haven't been spoiled by the massive money that, that's out there, you know, as well. So there's, there's, there's definite, definite, you know, there's a lot of hungry players here at Nashville. That, that's my experience anyway. And, and Steve, what's the deal? How much, um, how much of your own personal experience, the stuff that you've talked to us about already, um, how much of that do, do you bring into your coaching style, if you like? Well, it's, it's difficult. You know, obviously over a number of time, I realise that I'm, I'm not them and they're not me. So each player has got his own individual style. And the idea for me, in honesty, the hardest thing in the game is to score a goal. No doubt. Then after that, I believe it's to beat a player you know, in a 1v1 situation. So, you know, when you've got forward-thinking players, being able to create something or create their own chance, you know, those players are worth their weight in gold. So what I try and offer with this 1v1 formula that I've, I've come up with is, is um, you know, a set of rules or set of ideas to try and make the whole process easier. Now, some of them, you know, some of the ideas, you know, would be, yeah, yeah, I love that. Other bits, not so sure about that. That's fine. You know, but all I try and do is say, well, let's come up with an idea. Let's work at it. Let's work at it. Because to me, forward-thinking players have to work harder than the defenders because it's harder to create than to stop. So we should work harder than everyone else. Um, work on this process. And then come match day, the, the reality is when you have a 1v1 out wide or whatever, whatever part of the pitch, it can be quite a lonely place because you could lose the ball. You know, in, a, in, an, in an era where it's all about keep ball, keep ball, um, shape and patterns and all the rest of it, fine. But let's be honest now, what, we, what we're trying to achieve here, we're trying to score a goal, but more often than not, what we're doing with this pattern and shape and that is to create, isolate defenders. So we isolate mm. defenders in 1v1 moments, but hardly anyone's working at that 1v1 moment. They work, 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 play out from the back, you know, all this, shape, which we do, of course, every, every team does. But the actual reason you're trying to create is normally more often than not is a 1v1 moment because you've isolated the team. You've created an overload. You've isolated. And, and, and to me, that, that's what I find fascinating and try and get the players to work um, daily at Nashville and pretty much every club I've been at. And, and traditional well, wingers have kind of... Um, it's not... You don't really see it, see it now because of the, the, the systems that they play now. I mean, you look at... a a uh, team like Man City and, and, and what they do and to an extent your old club Leicester for example you don't really see those sort of the really wide players traditional wingers anymore do you? Well that, that's it I mean it was the thing about the inverted winger and, and I get that you know you watch 
watch Man City, and um, obviously they do. They look to create overloads all over the pitch, switch play, and isolate. But then you, you say that, but you, you look at someone like Mars whenever he plays. You know, I really enjoy watching him. You know, they're still creating one v one situations, and, and I guess to highlight the fact, probably the best team in the last ten years, I guess, would be Barcelona. Now, Barcelona, you know, everyone marvels at how they play, the Xavi, you know, Iniesta. They're all great at 1v1s. Maybe not to actually go past people, but to move the defender, to create space to pass for, for key passes. But then, obviously, I get to, you know, the main player in that Barcelona team is Messi. And we all know how destructive his 1v1s are, you know, and he's got his own technique where his ball was like on a piece of string on the end of his foot and he, a little drop of the shoulder and, and he travels at such a pace that no one can deal with it. So, you know, to me, you know, the 1v1s and taking players on is so, so vital, even in today's age, and maybe even especially in today's age where you have teams who are, who are very solid and, 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 and set up to, uh, to defend, you know, if you can switch play, isolate defenders, then you've got to make these 1v1s work and you've got to make them happen quickly. Well, I'm, I'm going <laughs> to, I'll give you a scenario of um, being a winger. I'm not a winger. I, I came to South Africa in 86 as a left back and I was playing left midfield. And you mentioned Terry Payne. Terry Payne was here at Vitz University. Of course, of course uh, he was. Yeah, yeah. A good relationship with Vitz. I played for the rivals Arcadia in Pretoria and I became a left winger. And I learned through South African, uh, the culture of South African football, uh, and that got me back to uh, England three years later after being kicked out of Sheffield Wednesday, got back to Leeds United three years later as a left winger. And that's how I signed. The unfortunate bit was I was against Gary Speed. And and then I became, an, again, I, I became a left back. Uh, and again, I was up against Tony DiRigo and our friend Mickey Whitlow and then Jim Beglin. So that was a difficult thing. But I did a training session the other day Um and we've got some very, very good young players, very good wingers. And basically, it was in the last third of the field. And when it got wide, I told the guys, right, go and attack the byline. And then you've, you've got to look for either a cross or a wee cutback. And they looked at me and they said, well, you know, we, we don't really, what, what's, a, what's, a, what's a cutback? And I said, well, unless, you can, unless there's people in the box that you can't cross it to, you come back on in, inside and then you look for a guy on the edge of the box. And it's like, we've lost that, you know, uh, identity. Well, I think we've lost that identity as, as coaches to, to, to tell wingers or to show wingers, you know, what a winger should do or what a winger should be like. You know, when you attack the byline and they don't cross it because there's nobody in the box, it's like, you know, have they not been taught this as kids? I know it's different in Africa, but I've seen that in, in, in England as well as at the academy. You know, the fullbacks that overlap, underlap, but when they get into certain areas, it's like, just come back and we'll go back outwards. We won't go and penetrate. We won't go and attack, you know, and, and drag a defender out. It's, it's, it's different now. Well, I think you make a great point. I mean, that that's really one of the main re well, one of the big reasons why repetitions, taking players on in training, practice, practice, practice is, um, is so important. You know, I think most people, most players, if they have a nice run up at a fullback, they can do some sort of trick and look to burst past them. But the best players, like your Terry Paynes of this world, you know, can, is, it's a, the trick is to be able to do a trick, a drop of the shoulder, or whatever, without realising you're doing it. 
because you haven't got time to think. You know, you think about David Ginola, or those sort of guys where just bang, bang, and they're gone. You know, and, and part of the reason, if you can learn how to do that, the next really important thing, other than to find the space, like you're saying, to be able to be, get, look for these 1v1 moments, is to make the right decision. Do they see the pictures? You know, I, I, I get tired of watching, you know, premiership games, any game, any level, where the wide player gets it, he's isolated the defender, but the defender changes his body shape to show him inside. Shows him inside because there's another defender there and, and that's where he wants him to go. But actually, there's two players in the box. And if he, mm. if, he, if he can move the defender and get down the line, now there's a cross and he's broken lines. He's broken past the back four. But it's incredible yeah. the amount of, of times you see the, the winger just surrender it and come inside and pass the ball square. So that yeah. really is, is a big part of the training we're trying to do is or you know work on 1v1s. Can you have that discipline of not only beat a player, but can you actually work on moving the defender, you know, in, in certain ways, certain things you can do and see the pitches. So when it's on to go down the line or the right decision to go down the line, can you manipulate the situation to achieve that? I think that's really important. And, and Steve, I just, and wanted to, just wanted to ask you, looking back on your career, because, you know, we're, we're talking about wingers and taking players on and you mentioned Matt Letizia and, Players like that, players like yourself and the strikers, obviously, are scoring the goals. Um, they're the players that really excite excite the fans. So, obviously, you had a great career and, you know, a big legend from, from Wickham days and then Leicester and, and, and so on. Um, and obviously, everything you've achieved in the game, do you have any... Do you sort of look back and, and look at the individual moments in games? Are they some of your favourite memories? Um, I mean, I, I guess you do they're, they're, to a certain point. There are moments in the game where you know things worked out, and you go, "Yeah, you know, I worked on that." And you know, uh, I, I guess to give you an example was that I was very predominantly left-footed, and um, I was obsessed with trying to get down the line and cross balls. But of course, defenders did some disgusting things, like trying to show me inside onto my right foot, which was really out of order. Um, so I had to try and work work out of how I could deal with that. So, you know, I was practicing and, and I guess I'm not looking for a pat on the back here, but what I did, even when I was a professional, I still carried on going out in the afternoons because I think it was good for me. I needed it. Um, and so I got to work on like a cutting side, tried to strike the ball with my right foot on my laces and I was rubbish at it. Couldn't do it. Um, but what I did find out that I actually could curl it so it was almost crossing with my right foot so then I started to practice cutting inside with my right foot when teams or players or the or the situation required it and I realized the more you know I got the technique right little things like making sure my my shoulders were were, were straight on not facing at the goal so if I did that then I had more chance of hitting the ball with with uh, on the end of my toe rather than my heel Little details, and, and that to me is what coaching is about, trying to offer those little details that make the difference. Um, and, I, and I became quite dangerous at it and scored a few goals, one against Chelsea that people seem to remember. Um, but that really, you know, that moment of, of, um, of those, those goals was almost like, well, you know, if you just showed me down the line, I wouldn't have worked at it, but you lot kept showing me inside. But in, no, in all honesty, it was just, trying to come up with with different ways to um, to be effective and, and, and as dangerous as you can be from from a from a football point of view you know everybody everybody's got a favorite manager or a coach uh, that they've played for um, 
you know, and 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 you you look at your your, your career. What's your what what's your highlight from your the managers and the coaches that you played for or work with? Obviously, there's a there's a main man, Martin O'Neill, and yeah. Uh, but you know, the coaches behind the scenes. I mean, did they help you along? You know, from 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 young to when you you know was playing for England. Is it just like one, or is it the a progression? No, it's it's. It's good and bad in my answer here. I mean, first and foremost, Martin O'Neill had a massive impact on my whole career, um, which which I know you know I maybe mentioned earlier. Um, I was really fortunate in that respect. But also, you know, the coaches he had, Steve Wolford, you know, uh, John Robertson. I know John Robertson always said he wasn't a coach and he wasn't actually tracksuit out on the out on the park as such. But he was someone who was a fantastic winger. So, you know, I used to try and tap into his experiences. And, and, and that to me is, is a, a, you know, as a coach, they're the ones, when you can offer up a little light bulb moment to a player, then that's a great time. You know, and, and a little example, I guess, I remember playing for Leicester and, and I was crossing, it was a bit of an issue with my crossing at pace where a couple of, I, I played against Bradford City, I remember it really well, where a couple of crosses went out, of the, went out behind the goal. So, um, you know, I wasn't, I was like, what is going on here? Um, and then Steve Wolford goes, you know what you're doing wrong, right? I goes, no. He goes, you're not arcing your run as you approach the ball. So you're running on it too, too straight. And that's a little, 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 kind, little, little light bulb moment. Well, hold on, actually. So if I arc my run as I'm coming in to cross the ball, I've actually, actually started the cross. It's almost like the run is the first bit. And now, obviously, all the technique of getting the mental pitch, your head down, and then you, you're following through. You're arcing, you're, you're arcing your foot round it. But mm-hmm. in essence, the actual run before, the little arc before, starts it all off. And that's, mm-hmm. wow, of course. And, and uh, you know, maybe I was doing it beforehand and it was only a little blip. But they're the little moments that, as a, as a coach, you, you, know, you crave to try and offer to players. Um, so they, they, were, they were fantastic and had a massive impact on, on my development. But then I never really considered becoming a coach because I worked for them. I was just like, well, this is going to be too difficult. They're too good. But then as I bounced around, and I'm not going to mention names, bounced around other teams, then I realised that actually they weren't all good. And then, and then maybe, just maybe I'd be able to have a go at being a coach. So, um, so in, in working with different managers, different coaches who weren't at the standard that I was really fortunate to work with for most of my career, in a, in a bizarre sort of way, it helped my career because um, it gave me confidence to try and become a coach. All right, well, Steve, it's been brilliant to to have you on as a guest. Really, really enjoyed that. And if anyone wants to kind of follow what you're doing now, is there anywhere they can sort of go to to follow you? Yeah, I just started this, this little Instagram account just on 1v1s, offer up 1v1 videos and, and that sort of interaction. So if you're interested in that, Steve.guppy, it's uh, Steve.guppy, the 1v1 formula. Um, come, and, come and join in. Mark, before he goes quickly, um, remember, uh, you know, how, how, you know, you're doing something that, like, remember Alan Russell, that, you know, the striker coach at England, you know, um, that went to America and did and did this striker uh, movement, striker scoring academy. Uh, I don't know, in, I think it, it might have been California, I can't remember. And then from there, he's gone to England and he's worked with Harry Kane. He got to be England goal, goal scoring coach. Now he's assistant manager at Aberdeen. I mean, how you know what? What's the next role for you? From you know being at Nashville, is it? Is, are you looking to come back to the UK, or are you looking to make a, a, an opportunity in America? 
No, listen, I've been in America about three or four times now, um, and, and it, none of it's been planned. I just, um, but I work with a really good coach in Gary Smith, who I, who I met at Wickham Wanderers when I was 21 year old, and we remain friends throughout. And um, and we work together well, you know, he's he's really into his defensive, um, setting teams up, uh, you know, and his passions lie within that, and he's excellent at it. So, you know, I think we, we hopefully we combine quite well, where he's more positioned and, um, and set up the team. And I obviously, as you know, love the, the 1v1s and, 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 you know, anything in the attacking third, attacking crosses, near post runs. I'm happy doing that. And now I'm joined by Adam Miles, who is the founder of Refugee Soccer in Salt Lake City in Utah in the USA. Welcome, Adam. Could you firstly start off by telling us what Refugee Soccer is all about? Sure. Um, pleasure to, to be on with you, Mark. Um, the refugee soccer is essentially, we bridge the gap between mainstream communities and refugee communities. And our mission is to create moments of hope and happiness through soccer all around the world. So delighted to be on a, on a British broadcast or podcast here. So thank you. <laughs> no, you're, you're very welcome. And I'm, I'm just really interested if you could start by explaining, um, you know, how, how this all came about and, and when. Sure. Um, started back uh, 2005 or so when I, I helped reunite an African family. I was living in California at the time, and he was a political asylee from the Central African Republic and started getting involved in Africa then. I was, uh, was working on Wall Street in finance, and uh, I was doing okay for myself, but um, just found life to be sort of um, unfulfilling. And when I found this opportunity to reunite a family, um, we, we ended up doing 10 more families just, just by word of mouth. Uh, and then in the course of that, I ended up having an opportunity to go to Africa because I was helping all these families from Africa. And I thought, you know what? Um, I need to see where these people are coming from. What is it really like? Um, and, you know, look, I've lived a privileged, happy life. I, I haven't had a lot of hard things, honestly. And um, when I went to Africa, I realized it, it was very stark. I went to Ghana with my oldest daughter, actually. And it was in this very first village that we were in. Uh, a little boy came up to me and, and the other members of the trip that I sort of snuck onto, honestly, um, it was a last minute thing for my daughter and me, but this cute little boy came up to me, probably 10 or 11. He said, hey, do you have a soccer ball? And I said, um, man, I don't. But my 13 year old daughter back in America loves soccer. And I tell you what, I'll come back and I'll bring you and all your buddies a soccer ball. And Mark, I didn't have a big bucket of money that I wasn't sure what to do with when I made that promise to him. But um, <laughs> Um, but you know, nine months later, uh, I was bad, by the way, I'm a big crybaby. I hope that's okay. It's too late now, but, um, <laughs> um, but nine months later, I'm back in the country with my youngest daughter and my middle daughter, and we had a hundred soccer balls and delivered them to, 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 to dozens of kids living in these villages. And so it kind of all started from there. Um, and, and wrapping up here the last, um, five or six years, I went through a divorce and, uh, you know, time financially constrained, you know, et cetera, and just sort of the emotional uh, beating that I took <laughs> going through a divorce um, had me take my eyes off of the overseas opportunities and focus more in, uh, in the U.S. Uh, there's 60,000 refugees in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I thought, you know what? Um, refugee soccer, like that's it. Like, like let's transition this to helping kids that are in our backyard. Um, that, you know, refugees sort of, not unlike mainstream folks, we sort of stick to what we know. We stick with what's comfortable with, with language, food, culture, religion, et cetera. And we're missing out on opportunities to connect 
and really live a richer, more abundant life by getting to know somebody who doesn't speak the same language, who looks different. But that bonding thing, Mark, is soccer. And, and, it, and I, I guess I should be calling it football, sorry. But, um, but I, I, know, I know your listeners understand, but I just, um, that's just been such a joy to me uh, to be able to, to connect people through this, the, the, world's, the world's sport, the beautiful game. And, and so how would you go from, um you know using football as a as a vehicle and i guess it's you know um in, inspiring to to get involved in in the first place but, but how does that actually translate into reuniting families how does that process work well well actually um it, it actually it doesn't uh, um I, I actually it just my work in africa started with me reuniting families um you know back in 0405 and um i i mean i will say that our the work that we do now is really about um, creating the sense of belonging. Um, I, I'll, I'll tell you briefly, there's a young man from Afghanistan uh, here in Salt Lake City, and, and he's just an absolute treasure of, of an individual. He's 14 years old. His dad worked for the U.S. military over in Afghanistan, our long you know, venture over there. And um, I was able to, I met him, I was able to get him on a team, uh, a local mainstream team here. And about a month later, I got um, pictures from him and some of the, some of the people on the team that, that, that I was sort of his like adopted soccer dad, I guess you could say. Um, he, he has a fine father all by, without my help, but, but I got pictures of them at the, the local um, you know, professional team, uh, Real Salt Lake it's called, in the MLS league here. And he sent me a picture of him and all of his buddies at this game. And he just said, this is my family. Uh, and, and, it, and it just touched me so deeply uh, that, that he felt that sense of belonging. And, and so it, the reunited right, reunification piece, I mean, we'll do that if it's ever an opportunity. But now it's really about uniting um, mainstream and, and refugee communities through soccer uh, and really creating a sense of family and of belonging. So we're into a, a new year now. Obviously, everyone knows that um, all, all the challenges that, that we've all faced over the last two years. Um, what are your aims with refugee soccer for, for this year? Yeah, um, a great question. So, so we just finished a really special uh, venture down in, in Alamogordo, New Mexico, um, in the southwestern of the United States, and uh, on, a, on an Air Force base there. Uh, this is one of the bases that took in some of the 70,000 or so uh, Afghan allies basically that were airlifted out of Afghanistan in, in, in the messy exit that I'm sure you know, you know everyone saw uh, back in the summer. And so we're going to do a lot more of that. It probably it may not be with with the Afghanistan uh, um, uh, evacuees, but 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 there are hundreds and hundreds of, of well thousands really uh, of, of Afghans that are being placed around the country. We're working now. Um, I have a call tomorrow with it with a U.S. government agency working with one of the biggest um, uh, resettlement agencies in the world uh, as well in, in talking about once those once those kids get to their new communities, how do we help integrate them? Um, it, as, as one of the gentlemen from, from the U.S. State Department said to me uh, in one of our clinics about a week ago, he said, these folks are in for a tough year. <laughs> and, um, and that's always the stuff that Mark, that, like, that's my call. Like, okay, so what am I going to do to help make their lives less difficult? How can, I, can, how can I engage the local soccer community, the football community, to wrap their arms around these kids, around these families? And it's happening right now here in Utah. And the goal for this year is to do it in many more communities around the country and just seek out these opportunities. Uh, uh, because uh, here's the secret, right? The secret is 
yes, we help the, these, these folks, we help these refugees, we help these, these evacuees, um, but they also help us indirectly, unintentionally, just by us having exposure to them and hearing their stories and seeing how much they love the game and, and to watch a mainstream person and an Afghan refugee or a Sudanese refugee or whatever, play soccer on the pitch together, like that joy, no government agency, no amount of money, right? It takes money to do what we do, but no amount of money, no, no government agency can make that happen. And it's not me. I just simply set up the opportunity, but it is that, it is that blessed game of soccer and football that makes it happen. And we're going to do a whole lot more of that this very year. Well, that's absolutely fantastic. And what an inspirational story and want to congratulate you. And I can see oh, you're you. not only so passionate about it, but you, you obviously get emotional when you when you talk about it. And that just shows, you know, how much you care about it and, and the, the individuals that you're helping. So really applaud you for that. Um, if if anyone wants to find out more information, get involved, support you in, in any way, um, where, where can they go? Sure, um, refugeesoccer.org.org um, to find all the information there. I, um, I, I, I will continue to, to grow and build opportunities, but I cannot wait to get back to the UK. Love it over there. Um, there's opportunities galore to, to help. And so anybody who's interested in being one of our, our fledgling sort of chapters, a refugee soccer chapter in the UK, please hit me up. Uh, and you can also follow us on Instagram at, just at refugee soccer. That's a great place to hear more about our story and, and, and get involved. Well, Adam, let's uh, let's stay in touch, and, and we'll uh, we'll see if we can support you in any way that we can as well. Um, oh, thank you. And you know, I wish you wish you well, and such an inspirational story. And, and again, you know, um, fantastic uh, admiration for for what you've done. So well, we have lots to do. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, I really so thank, that. Thanks for thanks for being a guest. Great to speak to you. Same here. Cheers. So now we're joined again by Nicola Waxler, who was a guest all the way back on episode 15. And Nicola, you've got an exciting announcement to make. So do you want to tell everyone why we've got you back on as a guest this week? Mark, I'd love to tell everyone. Um, so yeah, really, really exciting time entering into the new year. I'm going to be the new women's football section host for this podcast. So I'm really excited about that. That's fantastic. I'm really looking forward to to hearing what, you, what you've got to say and, and some great guests coming up, I know. Um, and we're absolutely delighted that you've agreed to host the women's football section. And we should say that hopefully Sherelle is going to be able to contribute to our women's section. But she is extremely busy, as we know, running two businesses, setting up her third business and playing football for Portsmouth women. So we don't know how she ever had time to do the podcast in the first place, but we're hoping that she'll still be able to uh, contribute. So, um, Nicola, you'll be our new women's football host from next week. How are you feeling about that? Yes, it's really exciting for me. Um, obviously, I've done a lot of things within the game and this is, is slightly new. Um, and I love podcasts myself. I listen to them every single day um, when I'm walking my dog and when I'm exercising. So I'm really excited to, to be able to have the opportunity to speak to people and help people within women's football in all capacities have a platform to show their talents and to show what they're about. And, you know, some of the things we're going to be covering would be things such as mental health within the game, um, things about players' journeys, coaches, even physios. So we've got lots of things that we're going to discuss that people may not know about just how to get to where you need to get to within the game as a whole. So, you know, not, not just players. So, I'm really excited to give people that opportunity to show, you know, what it is that they do and, and talk about that. 
to the world. Uh, and just by way of a reintroduction to you, because you have been a, a guest already, you're a former player and you played with some of the biggest names in, in women's football that people will, will have heard of, of course. Um, what would you say were, were some of your main highlights going back to your playing days? Um, yeah, so just, just touching on that. Um, obviously, it was, it was a really big highlight to be involved in the first ever women's girls academy in the country. So we, we pioneered it at Arsenal. I was 16. I was in that academy with people such as Alex Scott and Farrah Williams. Um, and I mean, you know, even then you could see what direction that they were going to go, even as a 16 year old. So, you know, looking back on that now, I feel really privileged to have, you know, learned from from girls like that and seen how hard they worked every day. And it wasn't it wasn't just them, you know, there were people that we got to be involved with, you know, at the Arsenal women's first team. I trained a few times with Rachel Yankee, which was really cool. I didn't play for the first team, but they obviously used to let us, you know, train if, if we were about. And so they were sort of real stalwarts of the game. Um, and then I, the education I had at Millwall, you know, people such as Hope Powers, an example, was in the first team when I was in the youth setup. So watching her habits every day, you know, coming into training and, you know, the role model that she was for all the young girls for all of us, um, you know, she she was the absolute epitome of professionalism. So that that was a highlight. And I think as well, the other one's got to be, you know, when I was younger, we had a really good team at Millwall. I've got trophies in, in my attic that, that literally go across the whole thing. So, you know, as a kid, that's what you play for, isn't it? You play to win the little, little plastic trophies. But as I got a little bit older, you know, just being around those amazing people, um, you know, I felt felt really lucky and I'm in a good place now to because we're the same age, you know, myself, Farah, Alex, that whole cohort of, of girls are all the same age. And we've all seen the sport grow from being the first ever academy to what it looks like now. Um, you know, so they were real highlights for me, definitely. And you mentioned Millwall. I mean, for, for a while, Millwall were the, the top women's club in the country, weren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is a, a lot of people don't know about this, but historically, Millwall have produced most of the players who either are to do with the WSL now or have been over the last 10 years. As an example, people like Jilly Flaherty and Claire Rafferty, I was their coach when they were sort of 10, 11. Um, players like that, Katie Chapman, so many players started at Millwall. And I think a lot of that is because they had such a good youth development and a good community trust. And, you know, at Millwall, people used to go and find the raw talent in inner city London, in that area, and they nurtured them as humans and as football players. So it's really nice when I see these girls now with got 100,000 followers on Twitter or whatever, and, you know, being professional footballers that actually all just started at, in Bermondsey. Um, so yeah, historically, Millwall Lionesses was 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 up there, producing all the best. And you're a very experienced coach. Remind us of um, some of the clubs you work with as a coach. Yeah, so I started at Millwall. Um, again, I was lucky. My mentors there, well, you know, now incredibly high up within men's football. You know, one one of which on the phone to the other day actually, Jim Hicks. Um, gave me a call the other day just to see how I was. And he still does that. And he, you know, he's Gareth Southgate's mentor. As an example, he puts people like Wayne Rooney, um, Solskjaer, 
In fact, I remember one time I was doing my um, level two. I think I was 17 at the time. And uh, I was meeting Jim at, at Millwall because he was going to help me do some of the work. And he just called me on his way back from whatever he'd been doing that day. He said, I'm going to be a bit late. I'm on my way back from Manchester. I said, oh, why have you been there? He said, oh, I've just been putting gigs and Solskjaer through their, their coaching badges. And I was like, all right, well, don't be late. <laughs> Make sure you get <laughs> obviously joking. But, you know, that's he, he's done an awful, awful, awful lot for women's football. Um, and I was just really lucky to to be around that. So, yeah, started at Millwall and then I coached at Arsenal. So I coached people like Jay Bailey, Leah Williamson, um, coached at Charlton for a brief spell, uh, Leighton Orient, and then more recently West Ham and the West Ham Academy. Obviously, the academy system is completely different now since the WSL has come out. So that was a new taster of how things have moved along, you know, since those sort of earlier, because all of those earlier days were... A lot of it was voluntary, if I'm honest. You didn't even get paid a penny. We did it because we loved it. Um, and obviously, there's still not a, an amazing amount of money in the women's game, but people can do it for a living now. So, you know, I've sort of got gone across that elite pathway to the point now as well, where a lot of the people I started out with at Millwall, funnily enough as well, and, you know, coaching the under-10s and stuff, are now head of the WSL in the FA. And we've got coaches that have gone on to coach for England, I'm not going to mention all the names. I'd be here all night, but, you know, that's sort of where the coaching started and how it continued and and how, as I say, the people that are really at the top of their game now, I've seen them on their journey, um, which is really cool. And and bringing things right up to date now from, from next week, as we've said, you're, you're the new host of the Early Doors women's football section, which is fantastic. And you've actually already mentioned some of the, the topics that, that we can expect to, to hear about. Uh, over the next few weeks and, and, and months. Um, what what else can we expect from, from the podcast in terms of guests and, and other topics that you might be talking about? Um, I think it would be really nice to give people an opportunity to really speak about what they're passionate about. So as an example, we've got a guest coming on who is, she, she started playing, well, she's 60 odd now. She started playing women's football way before I was born. Um, and then turned into a fan, a really, really big season ticket holder at Arsenal. Um, and now is looking into things such as the links to dementia and, you know, and how that, that, that led her to be an author. And that all came from being a young girl who wanted to play football and liked playing football. And so, you know, it's, it's stories that you may not have heard of, um, you know, but we'll, we'll get some people on as well that are a little bit more recognised and, you know, people might be interested to know. What I find it really interesting is the how. That's my favourite word in coaching is how. It's not why. So a lot of times when, when, when you listen to podcasts, people go, why? Why do you want to talk to this person? But I'm very much on the how. So I'm going to be finding out how they got to where they got to. So the people that are listening can have that opportunity. So as an example, we, we might speak to a current academy player who's, you know, 17, 18, 19. And we say, well, how does your day work? What time do you have to get up? How do you fit your studies in? How do you get ho get home at night? You know, because I know a couple of the girls I was working with more recently don't get home till 8.39 at night and then they've got to do all their A-level homework at home. And I, I just don't think people fully understand what it takes to be a professional within the women's game and the differences and the disparity, which is getting better, but between the women's and the men's. So not just the players, but, you know, I'm really looking forward to talking to people who work behind the scenes. 
the the analysts the the, the physios etc well fantastic nicola we're really looking forward to listening to what you've got to say each week so wish you good luck with it i'm sure you don't need any, any luck given your experience and and your sort of network in football if you like so see you next week for your first episode as our new women's football host can't wait thanks nicola and now it's time again for football fans from around the world and we're joined now by kai linseth who is a crystal palace fan uh, based near oslo in norway Kai, welcome. Um, I'd like to start, as I always do, by asking you, when and why did you start supporting Crystal Palace? I started supporting Palace, I think it was um, September, October 1980. Um, I don't know whether you remember these um, football cards that came in, like bubblegum packs. And, and yep. one day I got one with uh, Dave Swindler on, And I just fell in love with the shirt, you know, the red and blue sash. Um, and I still remember I was about seven years old and I was at my grandma's and I was just gazing at this card. It's like, this is going to be my team. Um, I didn't have much, you know, idea about football. Or I'd never heard of Palace, you know, uh, as, as a six, seven year old. But yeah, instantaneously, I, I knew that this, this was going to be my team. And it's, now it's, you know, 40 odd years. And... Uh, let's talk about this this season, bringing it right up to date. Would, would you say you're happy with the first half of the season so far? Oh, very much so. I mean, it's it's been, you know, better than what we could have, you know, hoped for, really. I mean, we're sitting comfortably mid-table. I mean, the playing, I mean, the, the actual style of play is, has changed tremendously. Um, and we're so much more attractive and fun to watch now. So, I mean, it's, I, I think every, every single Palace fan out there is, is just ecstatic at, you know, the, the turn of events because, you know, football's been drab uh, for the last few years. And, and, and this was, you know, a very, very, very much needed and very, you know, fantastic change for us. So hopefully we can keep it going. And I'd like to ask you about two Palace people. So the manager, Patrick Vieira, well, I'd like to ask your thoughts about him. But before we come to the manager, obviously, when people think about Palace in the modern day, you're going to possibly start thinking about Wilfred Zaha. What, what is he like as a Palace fan, as part of your team? I mean, for the last, what, seven or eight years, he's carried this team on his shoulders almost single-handedly. You know, he, he w without him, we would have been, you know, down in the championship years and years ago. Uh, but, I mean, he, 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 still, he, he divides opinion because, you know, of, of his style, his, his energy um, and, and everything, his, his antics. But, I mean, I think all Palace fans love him. Um, of course, maybe his, his career is maybe on the wane a bit now. He's, he's you know, 29. He's, he's not as quick as he used to be. But without him, I mean, he, he we would never be anywhere near where, where we are today as, as a club. And, so, and, I mean, it's, the manager, yeah, love him to bits. And the manager, what, what are your thoughts about Vieira? I mean... He's exceeded anything that I, I could have hoped for, really. He comes across as a very um, nice man. His, his head's right on his shoulders. He, yes, he has changed the way that we play. He's changed the way that we approach games. He's given us a belief in that we can actually beat anyone. Um, and, I mean, I was like most Palace fans. I, I think we were a bit uncertain about, or I, 
what's he going to bring? And he hasn't got all that much um, experience. But I mean, I, I'm I'm over the moon with with how things have gone so far. So I mean, yeah, I couldn't have hoped for anything better. And then the 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 final question, the tradition of the the prediction for the final position that that Panis will will finish in. I mean. Before the start of the season, I was, I, I'm like a born pessimist. I, I, I said 60. Um, maybe I'll have to like up it a little bit now. But I think maybe it's like where we are right now, 10, 11, 12. I mean, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be happy with that. Um, Mid-table, mid being, being so comfortable in mid-table, that, that's all, all we can ask for and really at, at this point in time. So that was a first, our first Crystal Palace fan. And we've got another first now. Our first fan, not only in Nigeria, but our first fan in, in Africa. Um, so welcome Oliver Tosin Abiodun, who is a Manchester United fan in Nigeria and also a coach, a football coach in Nigeria. So welcome, Oliver Tosin. And I know that um, you've got some issues where you are with your internet connection. So we're going to see how this, how this goes. But I'll ask you the first question and, let, and then let's keep our fingers crossed. So when and why did you become a Manchester United fan? The only thing I remember is the Manchester United final in Champions League against Chelsea 2008. So I, I see I was a little kid then, so I don't really can remember, but I think I started watching before then, but I can see more, a lot about the game I can remember. Because everybody was happy to watch the game, see Cristiano Ronaldo, and geese and all of them, we're happy to watch it then. So that's when I can remember I started watching Okay, and then uh, you're a football coach in, in Nigeria. So as a as a coach, why don't you think things are working out um, as well as they could be for Manchester United this season? The players are happy. And you see them coming out from the coming out to the pitch. Uh, they are not well mentally okay. They are not happy with the work they are doing. They, are, they don't work together as a team. And uh, as a coach, I can say the, the technical department is having an issue though. As, as a football coach, uh, the 70% the of, the, of the blame be on the, on the coach. But at, at the same time, I, I, I would say the player also, they, they need to get the ball and play. Because uh, when you see players uh, like Greenwood, uh, Rashford, uh... right. So he's gone. He's frozen. He's gone. So I'm going to take a pause and see if we can get him back. Okay, so we're not going to be able to get Oliver Tosin back. So after I paused um, previously, he did send me a message. So what he said is that um, he doesn't think Manchester United have been proactive enough, um, the players, the fans and the management. And he said they, they need to have um, Bruno, Varane, Ronaldo and so on. Um, that's a really important three players to be playing well um, to uh, have any chance of, of getting towards the top three. And he said um, he actually thinks that if they click, 
then the club is still in a race for the title. Um, so he's also said that um, he thinks potentially top three as his um, prediction. Uh, I'm sure a few of you might disagree with that. Well, that was an interesting way to end the last episode of the current format. So that was uh, Oliver Tosin, Abby Oden, very briefly, um, who is a Manchester United fan in Nigeria. Um, we, we did try. So we, we did hear you for a while, Oliver Tosin. And uh, um, so those are your answers to the last two questions as well. So that, that's it for the current format. We start the new format next week with Nicola on board as our new host of the women's section. And we've got a brilliant guest for you um, for the first episode of the new format of Early Doors Football Podcast. So join us then. Early Doors Football Podcast for football fans worldwide. If you want to get in touch with Mark and the rest of the team, you can reach them on early doors at forthenow.co.uk.